Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. Please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. This is an unplanned live stream interview that I did with Norman Finkelstein about the situation in Israel. He's an American political scientist, activist, former professor, and author. He was in a highly publicized feud with Alan Dershowitz and then was denied tenure at DePaul University. Both of his parents were in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. His father survived Auschwitz and his mother survived Majdanek. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I am so excited to be here with Norm Finkelstein. Uh, he probably needs uh, no introduction, but he is in. Uh, he is a. Can- he's been attempted canceled many times. He uh, received his PhD from the Princeton University. He's the author of ten books that have been translated into fifty foreign languages, including "The Holocaust Industry: Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering," and "Gaza: An Inquest into Martyrdom." And I accuse. And the forthcoming book is tentatively titled Cancel Culture, Academic Freedom, and Me. You're also well known, probably among my viewers and listeners, for um, fighting the good fight against people like Alan Dershowitz. Thank you so much for coming uh, onto the show. And I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And then I, we were playing phone tag and you called me and I realized, oh, well, we should do this live because uh, you're such a resource and people are so angry right now and also not really understanding what's happening because there's, as you well know, uh, quite an intense media Hasbara in Israel and then our own form of Hasbara here in the United States, which manages to write headlines that talk about clashes and use passive voice to totally exonerate Israel of its role. But uh, I'll just shut up and ask you for your thoughts about what's happening right now. Well, I think there are two two things happening, broadly speaking. There are two things happening on two different planes, two different levels. And I'm going to encourage you as I speak to stop me where you want me to elaborate on the point, because I don't want to speak at, at infinitum and to lose listeners. So let me just map out broadly what I see happening. First is the headline news, which is the explosion in East Jerusalem, which was a long time coming. There have been intimations for the last few weeks or more that Israel's expulsions of families in East Jerusalem were at some at some point going to climax in a clash. And that happened this past week. You can never predict when they're going to happen, but obviously um, a breaking point had been reached. That's the political aspect, the facts on the ground. And that's what's right now garnering all the headlines. There's another aspect to this conflict, which has been getting some, but not equal media attention. And that is the quite dramatic, and one might say, 
a turning point in the Israel-Palestine conflict at the legal, at the moral, and at the public opinion level. I'll collapse all three, legal, moral, public opinion level. And for some of your listeners, it's particularly revealing of what's happening in the American Jewish community. Now, let me just try to back up and put things in context. First, the major development. The major development is this past week, Human Rights Watch, which, as you know, is the leading human rights organization in the world. It's the most prominent, the most influential, the most well-endowed. And I would also say, because it's pertinent to what I'll be saying this this evening in our conversation, it's also the most centrist. It's the most mainstream of the human rights organizations. And this past week, Human Rights Watch uh, put out a very substantial report. It ran to 214 pages, and it had a voluminous scholarly apparatus, which is the fancy way of saying that it was exhaustively and comprehensively researched. It's an impressive piece of work. And it had many dramatic things to say. The title of the report is A Threshold Cross. A Threshold Cross. And before I get to that threshold cross, I want to just back up a moment and set it in context. The context is that since roughly 2009, Palestinians and their supporters have been trying to bring a case against Israel before the International Criminal Court. And These were very protracted proceedings, and they frankly seemed as if they were getting nowhere. There were two cases brought before the court. One was after many, many years, finally dismissed by the chief prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda. That was the subject of the book, the title of which you mentioned, I accuse it was an attack on the chief prosecutor of the ICC, uh, Fatou Bensouda. And then there was a second case brought before the court. The second case was also dragging and dragging and dragging, and it looked as if it was going to die out. However, this past year, for reasons which I won't go into now, The court finally decided it's proceeding with an investigation into Israeli war crimes against Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as well as Gaza. Now, one hurdle had been cleared to pursue this investigation, but there were still many other hurdles to be cleared. I myself, having studied, followed the case closely and studied it, I was very skeptical the Palestinians would be able to clear 
the next hurdles. There are a lot of legal technicalities which would have enabled the court to kill the case. And I didn't think that they would be able to prevail, the Palestinians. But then, lo and behold, about three months ago, the Israeli human rights organization, Selim, which is the main Israeli human rights organization monitoring Israeli crimes in the occupied Palestinian territories, it came out with what one might call an astonishing position paper. And I'm just going to read you the title. I'm not going to belabor you with the text, just the title. A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Colon. This is apartheid. A regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, colon, this is apartheid. Now, there are three notable things about that title. Number one, they use a very incendiary phrase. The phrase is Jewish supremacy. Now, obviously, for an American ear, that sounds awful, an awful lot like white supremacy. Jewish supremacy. There's not even a fleece hop separating the two. So to a public which has been mostly because of the Black Lives Matter movement, very much sensitized to issues of Jewish supremacy and Jewish domination, excuse me, white supremacy, white supremacy yeah. and white domination, it was, as I said, uh, an incendiary phrase. Secondly, usually in discussions of the Israel-Palestine conflict, there is Israel here and the occupied Palestinian territories there. Israel's legitimacy is more or less accepted. The, the point of contention is the state and future of the occupied Palestinian territories. That Selim did something new. It said, we're no longer talking about Israel here, occupied Palestinian territories there. There's just one state now. We have to be honest about it. There's just one state between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. And that one state is Israel. And that one state is a Jewish supremacist state. As the report goes on to say, this state is built on its foundation is Jewish supremacy. And then it takes the next step and, say, and says, this is an apartheid state. Well, that crossed several red lines. Number one, it no longer acknowledge the legitimacy of the state of Israel. The point of contention was no longer just the occupied Palestinian territories. It was the whole thing. And number two, they compared it to apartheid. And for Israel's supporters, that's been a bogey. You can't compare it to apartheid. So 
This was a development which, frankly, speaking candidly, I was shocked. I was very surprised at what they did. They have a new leadership. Uh, the fellow who heads the executive director is a fellow named Haggai El-Ad. It's a very unusual figure. I don't know him personally. I've never had contact, not from a want of trying by me, but we've never had contact. He's a Harvard PhD. Get on it, God. <laughs> He's a Harvard PhD in physics, and he apparently set aside his professional attainments, and he now heads up that cell. And he's a remarkably principled and forthright person. There are some quite amusing exchanges between him, or one amusing exchange between him and the Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danan, uh, and the United Nations. It's a real sight to behold. And frankly, I personally thought and still think he has gone so far out on the limb that there's probably a good chance he will be assassinated. Wow. Now, that Selim report didn't get all that much attention. It was not reported in the New York Times. However, Jesus Christ, it wasn't? Oh, my God. I mean, but, I shouldn't be surprising, but wow. But now, the next shoe dropped, the Human Rights Watch report. So just so people are clear, so Beth Salem is like the first and foremost human rights organization in Israel, right? Is that? The main Israeli human rights organization monitoring Israeli crimes and abuses. I don't like the word abuses. I prefer crimes. Israeli crimes in the occupied Palestinian territories. It's very reputable. It's won many awards. And I think it's fair to say nobody has seriously disputed the quality or the accuracy of its research. So uh, it's a formidable organization in terms of its persuasive power. Uh, it has a good track record for its accuracy. Now, the Human Rights Watch report is as astonishing as the um, Beth Selim report, but in a different way. First of all, the Human Rights Watch report says not that Israel has established a regime of Jewish supremacy across the board from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. They say something slightly different, but equally incendiary. They say Israel has established across the board from the Mediterranean to the Jordan, Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, they have established a regime, I'll use their words now, a regime of Jewish domination uh, over and against the Palestinian people. And, and, here's their report. Yeah. and they say that in the occupied territories, 
Israel has established or Israel engages in the crime of apartheid and the crime of persecution, and that these two crimes constitute under international law, they constitute uh, crimes against humanity, which according to Human Rights Watch, quoting some statutes, they say these are among the most odious, O-D-I-O-U-S, among the most odious crimes in international law. And they say that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, it should not limit itself to investigating Israeli war crimes, but should go to the next step and investigate Israeli crimes against humanity. So it's already taken what you might call out on the limb positions, but I'll get to that in a moment, get back to that in a moment. The other thing it does, which was total surprise to me, I'm not putting, you know, I'm not saying these things for their theatrical or emotive effect. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm quite, I'm being quite sincere, candid with you. I've studied this conflict since 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon. It eventually became the topic of my doctoral dissertation. And so I'm pretty inured to events in the Israel-Palestine conflict. I kind of think I've seen it all. But I do think some things are really happening which are very surprising. It's the 1960s song that I grew up with. There's something happening here. There is. Something is happening. There's no doubt about it. Because the Human Rights Watch report doesn't just stick to the present. What is the situation now? What has been the situation the past 10 or 20 years? The Betzelm report is basically a description of the present. The Human Rights Watch report, uh, I'm not exaggerating. Believe me, I don't exaggerate. I'm, I'm very careful about staying, staying true to the facts. It goes all the way back to Israel's establishment in 1948. It even goes back to 1947. And it says, from the beginning, Israel, in order to create this Jewish state, the Zionist movement, and then the state of Israel, they tried to do two things. Number one, they tried to, I'm using their words now, engineer a Jewish majority in Israel. Because for the founders of the state of Israel, a Jewish state could not be a Jewish state unless there was a Jewish majority. And so they wanted to engineer that Jewish majority. Well, there was only one way to engineer the Jewish majority. You had to expel the indigenous population. There was no other way to do it. And so, that's the, and so Human Rights Watch, it delegitimizes 
the notion of or the legitimacy of an objective of a Jewish majority. Because it says in order to create that Jewish majority, it could only be created at the expense of the Palestinians. And so it says this creation of a Jewish majority state was intrinsically at the expense of or discriminating against the Palestinian population. The second pillar of the Jewish state objective was the confiscation of the land, because the land was owned by Palestinians. They lived there. When Israel was created, only 6% of the land was owned by Jews. So, or the 6% of the land in Palestine was owned by Jews. So, they described in really, I would call it searing detail, even though I know that's a kind of catchphrase, they described this in searing detail, this juggernaut, this moor, which is gobbling up the Palestinian land, dispossessing the Palestinians of their land. And to the point that to create the Jewish majority, 90% of the indigenous population was expelled. About 750,000 Palestinians now, with their descendants, Human Rights Watch uh, gives a figure of 5.7 million Palestinian refugees. And then on the other end, they say that Israel controls 93% of the land, is state-owned land. And that 93% is earmarked only for Jews. Palestinians constitute 19% of the population of the state of Israel, about 1.6 million people, and they are confined to about 3% of the land. To cut to the chase and to make a long story a little bit shorter, the effect is, and I wish, you know, it's hard for your generation or probably most of your leader, your listeners to appreciate. The long and the short of the report, and I'm not quite sure if the Human Rights Watch is really aware of what they were doing. And honestly, I'm not sure, but the long and the short of the report is it completely delegitimized the idea of a Jewish state. It said a Jewish state is inherently discriminatory and in critical respects in order to create and preserve until today, in order to create or engineer and to preserve till today, a Jewish state, Israel committed many inhuman acts, crimes against humanity, inhuman acts, the massive forcible eviction of people from their homes, the massive 
illegal confiscation of the land of the Palestinians. And there are two things to say to that, and then I kind of would like an, a dialogue with you, if you don't mind. Of course, yeah. There are just two things I would want to say to that. Is number one, what's happening now in East Jerusalem, you just see it when you read the Human Rights Watch report, you see it as part of this juggernaut that began in 1947, this relentless, heartless confiscation of Palestinian land. They just don't stop. You know the expression? The hunger increases with the eating. Mm-hmm. The more they consume that land, the more they want more and more and more. And so after reading the report, you, you see what's happening now in East Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah. You just see it. As one more step in this long trajectory, this relentless, heartless juggernaut, this maw of stealing the land from those hopeless, helpless, and hapless people. That's one point. The second point I would make is where I began a few, where I said, well, left off a few moments ago. Human Rights Watch is a mainstream organization. It's not a radical organization. They don't watch its its, uh, leadership. They don't watch useful idiots. They don't watch Rising. They are they watch NPR, they listen to NPR, they read the New York Times. In their leisure, they read the New Yorker. They probably subscribe to the New York Review of Books. Probably maybe a few subscribe to the London Review of Books. They're very mainstream, very conventional. They're also very Jewish. Kenneth Roth, the executive director. Shonda. He goes uh, on the Shonda list. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, uh, he's, uh, this is the mainstream uh, progressive and centrist Jewish community. And they're very dependent on Jewish donors. Their biggest donor, I haven't followed their funding in recent years, but they received a humongous uh, donation from George Soros. It was a spectacular number. I can't remember now. If you Google it, just do George Soros Human Rights Watch. Um, And so they must be very sensitive to how far they can go on the Israel-Palestine conflict before they lose their donors and they lose their constituency, which tells me that having done the calculations, 
they reached the conclusion that their donors and their constituency were ready, were prepared, could digest a human rights report issued by HRW, which not only condemns Israeli policy in the occupied Palestinian territories and describes his policy as the crime of apartheid, the crime of persecution, and those two crimes, apartheid and persecution, are crimes against humanity under international law, which, as I say, constitute among the, quote, most odious crimes in international law. They went not only that far, but they described the whole regime, the whole regime from the Jordan to the Mediterranean as one based on Jewish domination, which, as I'm sure you recognize, is only a fleas hop from saying Jewish supremacy. They're pretty much synonymous. And what's most, in my opinion, as not more, but as uh, revelatory, they said all this on the assumption, in my opinion, that they wouldn't lose their Jewish constituency. Mm. They were ready to say the idea of a Jewish state, at least as it's been constructed in Israel, is illegitimate under international law. That to build a state, create a state, built on the premise and principle of a Jewish majority, and by confiscating nearly the whole of the land to be used only by and for Jews, which is what the Jewish state has meant the last 73 years as a practical matter. As a practical matter, it's meant the Jewish majority and the confiscation of the land for, of, by, and for the Jewish people. Mm. No? It delegitimized the idea of a Jewish state. And that just shocked me. As I said, I'm not fully persuaded they realized what they were doing. But that's the bottom line. It's definitely the bottom line. The bottom line is, henceforth, the paradigm is no longer Israel here, occupied Palestinian territories there. Israel, for better or for worse, we accept it as it is. Occupied Palestinian territories, we don't accept. The occupation has to end, and a Palestinian state has to be created. That's the, that was the paradigm up until now. Now, the whole legitimacy 
of the state of Israel as a Jewish state has been called into question. What is the effect of all of that on today? What's happening today on the media's coverage of what's happening today? What What is the shift that you're describing? How does it manifest itself? Well, as a practical matter, let's just take one example. As you probably know, there's been a huge amount of contention on college campuses over this annual event called Israel Apartheid Week, which unfolds annually on many college campuses. And up until now, the Israeli organizations and their supporters have said that it's anti-Semitic, it um, hurts the Jews, it makes Jews feel scared, and it hurts them, and all this you know, politically correct nonsense in order to try to suppress Israel-Palestine week. Well, guess what happened? In the past three months, the most important human rights organization in Israel and the most important human rights organization in the world, they said, but it is apartheid. And they just legitimized Israel Apartheid Week. How can the Israelis answer that now and their supporters? You want to suppress a term, apartheid, that's been appropriated now by Human Rights Watch and Betselem. So I think this is a major setback for Israel's apologists. I think they're probably now in a panic mode. And I think that events like what's happening now in East Jerusalem will no longer be seen in isolation. When you read the Human Rights Watch report, you now see it as a momentary flashpoint in a long trajectory. Now, you asked me what is its implication now for the events there. I think there is something of quite interesting happening. What do I mean? Well, the flashpoint is in East Jerusalem. However, Palestinians in Haifa, Palestinians in Nazareth, they're all joining in. Palestinians in the West Bank are joining in. Palestinians in Gaza via the so-called rockets, they're joining in. And so you kind of see a manifestation of what the report described. Because both reports talked about from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, meaning it's about all Palestinians and all Israelis. And you see now a bus caravan from Haifa, a bus caravan from Nazareth, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza. So I, you get, it appears, I don't want to read too much into it, 
and like many flashes in the pan, they just disappear. But for the moment, it seems like it is becoming a struggle no longer confined to the occupied Palestinian territories or confined to Gaza, as was the Great March of Return beginning in March 2018, or confined to the West Bank, it's now spreading among all Palestinians. Um, and I think that's a, it's a significant development. It, it's possible that all the terms for understanding the conflict and resolving the conflict, those terms are now being called into question and they are they may be recast in a new form, which I think it's going to be a real problem for the state of Israel. I'll tell you something which is a kind of a paradox and irony. I'm not passing judgment now. I'm just going to lay out a picture. From 1967, Israel's occupation, and especially beginning in the 19, early 1970s, Israel's existence as a state, as a Jewish state, it ceased to be called into question. The international consensus was, as I said earlier, Israel, for better or for worse, it exists, it's a state, it wants its Jewish majority, it can have its Jewish majority, and it can carry on however it wants internally. And then the issue was just to occupy Palestinian territories. Had the Israelis not been so arrogant, had they not been mm. so, uh, so supremacist, so contemptuous of the Palestinians, had they just calculated their own uh, best interest, they would have settled for the two states and just let's move on. Right. But the arrogance, that Jewish supremacy, that impulse for Jewish domination, the cheapness to which they reduced Palestinian life, it had a paradoxical consequence. And what was the consequence? The consequence was that now their whole legitimacy is being ch challenged. When it first came up, you're too young, obviously, to remember. But in 1975, with the Zionism is Racism resolution at the UN, when it first came up, the Western states, in particular the United States, it expressed its outrage, its indignation. How dare you say Israel is a racist state? How dare you say Israel is um, a apartheid state? You probably remember this, the uh, American 
official, I won't call him a statesman, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Mm -hmm. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan made his whole reputation by sitting in the United Nations. You could find it right now on YouTube. Just, um, uh, just enter Moynihan, UN, Zionism is racism. And you're going to see the picture of him holding up his hand, giving his no vote to that resolution. And that launched his career. It launched his, his, his career. I got and it. If you want to watch it, I have it. Right. And, um, and here is the irony, Kate. It's going to be lost on uh, most of you, most of the viewers, because they're too young. And lamentably, I'm too old. But um, here is the irony. What Moynihan is objecting to now, the Zionism is racism resolution at the UN. Guess what? You now open up Beth Selim's report. You open up Human Rights Watch report. And what did they say? The Israeli state is based on Jewish supremacy and Jewish domination. Now, isn't that an irony? Isn't that an irony? That's what the reports are now saying. Exactly what launched Daniel Moynihan's career denouncing that claim, as did the whole of the Western states and the American media in particular, that position, Zionism is racism, or Israel is a Jewish supremacist state based on Jewish domination, that now, that notion has now been legitimized. And that's, um, it's a real, from a historical point of view, it's a real irony. Because to use, um, to use, um, I can't think of the word that slips my mind, but to use simple language, they could have gotten away with it. Yeah. The international community was willing to accept Israel as it was, even though they knew the land was being, had been, and was still being relentlessly confiscated. They knew there were Palestinian refugees who were denied the right to return to their homeland. Everybody knew that. But the international community turned its head, its head away and said, let's just forget about that. Let's just resolve the conflict. Two states, Palestinian state, Israeli state, and let's move on. They didn't want to move on. They wanted to have everything. They wanted to have everything. And now everything is being called into question. Everything. It's absolutely, and I don't want to say this for its dramatic effect, and maybe it's because I've studied the conflict so closely, but it's absolutely shocking what happened. And can you talk, I mean, there's a lot I want to ask you about, but it's also late, and I really appreciate your generosity and your time. Um, want to definitely, I'll ha I would love to do another interview with you where we talk more about the history, um, how new this is, you know, how how 
this is stuff like Benny Morris was saying, right? Years ago before he flipped right. Well, um, I want to just, I, I, I don't want to stop you, but that was that last point I wanted to make. Sure. That the title of the Human Rights Watch report is A Threshold Cross. The paradox there is the threshold was not crossed by Israel. Like you say, this is all old news. The threshold was crossed by Human Rights Watch. Mm. They crossed the threshold. They now were looking square in the face without without any extenuations, any any qualifications, any caveats. They said Israel is based on Jewish domination. It's, (laughs) I mean, I could barely say that. I I had a kind of a small public career denouncing Human Rights Watch. I mean, many chapters, many of my books are devoted to denouncing its whitewashing of Israel. And I said to a friend of mine, Moeen Rabani, I said, who would have thought the day would come to pass that Human Rights Watch would make us, meaning Moeen and I, look like milk toast? <laughs> yeah. They've now taken positions, which frankly I've not taken publicly. I was of the school, let's just resolve this, let's end the occupation and move on. Yeah. But now the terms are changing. So what they what how have they so it used to be let's end the occupation and move on and we'll have a two state solution, and yep. now it's basically let's end the occupation, can't move on yet. We're going to have to do more than end the occupation and have a one state solution. I don't know the answer to that. I think we're still in flux, but what I do think is quite clear is critical aspects of what's come to be known as. The Jewish state, namely its right to maintain, preserve a Jewish majority and its right to hold territory only for the use of Jews. And also, I should have added, Human Rights Watch uh, denies the legitimacy of the law of return that every Jew has the right to come to settle in Israel and get automatic citizenship. But, as Human Rights Watch says, a Palestinian who was born there, lived there, and traced his or her roots there cannot do that and is languishing in a refugee camp. They say that law of return is inherently discriminatory and reflective of Jewish domination. So. They cast doubt in the legitimacy of that, or they clearly say it's illegitimate. Now, what that will mean ultimately in terms of a political settlement, I can't predict that. But what you just said, I think, is precisely right. Now it's, we end the occupation, but... There are still other things that have to be cleared up here. There's still some problems here. There's still some problems here. And the problems are 
right in your state. They're not next door. Right. Your house. It's not your yard. It's not your backyard. You know, it's not your front yard. It's not your neighbor's yard. It's your own house. There's a problem there. Because your, your state is based on Jewish domination. That's a problem. Your state is based on Jewish supremacy. That's a problem. Uh, so it's new. It's new. But it's new in two senses or in two respects. It's new because these human rights organizations never said it before. But it's also new because I do not believe HRW, Human Rights Watch, would have gotten, gone so far out on the limb unless they felt confident that they could keep their donor base and their constituency, which means progressive and center Jews. Jews not only on the so-called progressive end, but also in the center. That's Human Rights Watch. It's not a radical organization. They felt they can keep their constituency. And that means for a large, not of the whole, and maybe not yet a majority, but for a large portion of American Jewry, they've given up on Israel. Okay. So it's just, it's not like a strategic thing, we'll do this so that Israel then can do A, B, C, D. I mean, yeah, because I don't see what they get out of it, unless it's like, okay, we're going to call them out and then we're going to, then Palestinians are going to do something and we're going to be like, oh, we we called Israel out, we're fair. And now... No, uh, no. I, I don't think it was a kind of... Conspiracy? Conspiracy, no. Yeah. No. No, it was too serious. If you look at the report, you know, I've devoted most of my life, literally, to documenting what goes on there. And a lot of their documentation, I had never read. It was really exhaustive. You don't do something like that as a, so to speak, true trick, ruse, uh, a diversion. No. But sometimes it's not even conscious, not to sound like a, like, you know, Jungian or Freudian, but it, there is some kind of self-preservation that can show up, right? Yes, but I personally think it goes deeper. As you're aware, I wrote a book um, probably about 10 years ago now. It was called Knowing Too Much, Why the American Jewish Romance with Israel is Coming to an End. And the basis, the, the, the thesis of the book was, for the longest time, Israeli propaganda and Israeli propagandists dominated our understanding of what's going on there. But gradually, slowly, incrementally, the truth began to creep in, to seep in. And American Jews, they're very well, they're very well-educated, the highest percentage of any ethnic or religious group went to college, have postgraduate degrees, so on and so forth. They go to schools, they hear this stuff in class, they hear it from their professors, they read, as you mentioned, they read Benny Morris, you know, they read Avi Shleim. And uh, 
gradually American Jews came to know too much. They couldn't deny anymore what was going on there. And so there was an estrangement effect. And now there were, in recent years, there were three major developments. Development number one is the Israeli political spectrum, it went off the rails. Every other country in the world which has an alt-right, let's say in Brazil, there's a Bolsonaro. Right. There's also a workers' party. There's a, a right. there is a robust left. In the case of the United States, we had an alt-right government, Donald Trump. It was an alt-right government. However, we also had a Bernie Sanders. And my view, I'm not going to uh, exhaust your time with it now. It's my opinion. It's an opinion. My opinion is if there had been, up until South Carolina, it looked like Bernie was going to win uh, the Democratic nomination up until South Carolina. Had he won and had he faced off Trump, I think he would have won. Me too. I can't, I can't prove it, but yeah. I think we can both agree it's a reasonable, a reasonable possibility. Yeah. The thing about Israel is there's no center and there's no left. Mm. There's just a right, a far right, and an ultra right. That's it. There's no center. There's no left in Israel. And American Jews, during the, during the Trump years, during the Trump years, every American liberal Jew, centrist Jew, you're supposed to hate Trump. Whether that was right or wrong, that was the politically correct thing to do, to be part of the resistance. You knew that because you read the New York Times, you watch MSNBC, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to hate Trump. Well, now American Jews had a problem. The person they're supposed to hate, the strongest ally in the world is the Prime Minister of Israel. That's a problem for American Jews. Trump, yeah. Trump's number one ally was Benjamin Netanyahu. There was a bromance between the two of them. If you looked at opinion polls from around the world, except for one country in Africa, it may have been Liberia, but I can't tell you for sure. The only country in the world where a majority of the population, the only one where a majority of the population loved Trump, was Israel. And so now you have a problem for American Jews. Israelis love Trump. The prime minister of Israel loves Trump. Trump loves them. So for American Jews, it's very hard to reconcile. It's very hard to reconcile. But aren't there a lot of liberal mm -hmm. Jews who would who fall into that category, who, who let, who, who like the, the narrative, or will say themselves, it's, look, we should criticize Netanyahu. He's too much. He's, he's, he's a bad guy. But Israel, you know, but that's different from, like, BDS, or that's different from questioning Israel. Israel has the right to defend itself. Like, they, they, they either feign or have convinced themselves that, you know, Netanyahu's maybe a bit too much. Yeah, but the problem is, Netanyahu's 
It's now on the left end of the spectrum. Oh, yeah. The spectrum, as I said, it goes from right to far right to ultra right. That's the spectrum. So you can't say Benjamin Netanyahu's too much. He's eminently representative of what Israel is and what Israel has become. Right. I'm just saying they, I think that they, that that's how they reconcile that in their own minds. It's not co- coherent, but I think for them, it's a coherent worldview. Um, I would say it's a worldview where trying to hold together the coherence is becoming much more difficult. Yeah. And that brings to mind to me the second development, which was the Black Lives Matter. Because the Black Lives Matter made for liberals or progressives the touchstone of their politics was racial sensitivity. I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it. I'm just saying that became the touchstone, the identity politics. Now, what do you do when American Jews are denouncing white supremacy in the name of identity politics, and along there comes this state which proclaims Jewish supremacy? That's very hard to reconcile. You know, what you talked about they have a coherent worldview. It's a coherence that they're finding very hard to hold together anymore. So I think there was the combination of the romance between Netanyahu and Trump, the emergence of identity politics and the sensitivity to white domination and white supremacy. Um, I think those were two significant factors in the short term. Uh, you know, after my own book came out, in the short term, which are making Israel a very, it's a very difficult thing for American Jews to any longer cling to in public. It's like, if you know yeah. the expression, Israel has become like the Meshuggah aunt who you put in the attic. And you prefer not to be show, not to show the company. Right. And Israel for American, for a large chunk of American Jews, is a subject which, if they have the choice, they'd rather not talk about. You know, it's like I went out to dinner this evening with a couple of friends, and there was an older woman who joined us. And she said, let's not talk about politics. Let's not talk about politics. And now for Israel, around the dinner table, you know, family right. job, let's not talk about Israel. We don't want to talk wow. about it anymore because the place has gone off the rails. The place is crazy. You know, it's a lunatic state. So I think it's, um, it's become an embarrassment. And I don't believe that HRW would have taken this step unless it calculated the same way as I am now, that we are not going to lose our base, our donor base, our constituency, if we say these things. And also, if you work within HRW, it's not just the leadership, there's a staff. 
There are lots of idealistic people. There are. There are idealistic people who joined HRW or Amnesty International or various other NGOs because they really are committed to certain basic human rights and they aren't yet cynical. Yeah. You know? And they see the same things as you and I see. And they're not kind of trying to patch together their worldview. They want their worldview to be based on what's really happening. And now they're going to open up, you know, this report. Hmm, there's a real problem here. There's a real problem here. Uh, So I think Israel's in for a bumpy ride now. Its supporters are going to have a very hard time now uh, on college campuses. Very hard time. Oh, by the way, I just want to share this with you guys before I know how late it is. But I just I wanted your commentary on some headlines, because I I don't know if you've been looking at this, but the way that this is being covered in the media is not. Sadly, it's not surprising. There's a lot, again, of like passive voice. Let's see. So USA Today writes, more than a dozen tear gas canisters and stun gun grenades landed in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of Islam's holiest sites, as police and protesters faced off inside the wall compound that surrounds it. So that's interesting. Tear gas canisters and stun grenades landed. Well, there was um, a video I just saw on YouTube of Israelis dancing and cheering. Oh, yeah. There's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. That on Al Aqsa Mosque. Yes, so, which really con- is which you would never know from that headline or from this one. Hundreds have been wounded in new clashes between Palestinians and Israeli security forces. Again, it makes it seem like they're both sides are equally armed. More than three hundred people were wounded. Renewed clashes between Palestinians and Israeli police. I think I saw one headline that actually had a verb attributed to. Israel. I don't want to be Pollyannish about this, but I don't think they're going to be as successful anymore. Who, Israel? You don't? With the hiding the truth. We saw the video of them dancing and singing as the fire uh, blazes on Al Aqsa. Yeah, let me look at that. But but look, it's not even, it's barely up there. They were all wearing Jewish yarmulkes. Yeah, let me look for that. It was actually quite hideous. It was actually quite hideous. If you were to imagine in a, in a neighborhood like where I live, in Ocean Parkway, where there's about two synagogues in every block, of Muslims gathered around the synagogue while the synagogue is on fire and they're cheering. Yeah. Oh, they were all singing. It's disgusting. Cheering. Where it was huge. It? it was huge. I know. Why can't I find it now? Um, cheering. Cheering Al Aqsa Mosque fire. Okay, one second. What and also, what do you say to when people are like, oh, but but they're they're firing rockets. Oh, but um, they're firing rockets. Oh, but uh, they were hiding weapons in the mosque. What? How? What are your responses to the kind of most common? Well, I'm not aware that they're even making the claim that there were weapons hidden in the mosque. I'm not aware that that claim was made. As far as Hamas 
firing so-called rockets. I think they have the right to show solidarity with the people in Jerusalem. Is it politically a prudent thing to do? I'm not sure. It may be a useful distraction for Israel. It might be. But there's a difference between what's prudent politically and what morally you have the right to do. Right. Morally, they have the right to register their solidarity with Palestinians who are being evicted from their homes. And you know why they have the right to do that? Because 70%, of the people of Gaza are Palestinians and descendants of Palestinians who were, guess what, evicted from their homes. 70% of Gazans suffered already the fate of the families in East Jerusalem. They not only suffered that fate, they have endured it for 73 years. They were denied the right to return to their homes. So if they fire some rockets, which you know as well as I know, are largely symbolic in their effect. If they fire some symbolic rockets to show their solidarity with other Palestinians now being threatened with the same fate as they suffered in 1947 through 1949, morally, they have the right to do it. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. Found it. Found the footage. Sorry about that delay. It's kind of nauseating. You remember, Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third most holy site in the world for Muslims. And they set a fire on the mosque and all of these lunatic Jews, of which it's not a small number, they're all cheering. Yeah, here it is. Oh my God. They're not even orthodox, are they? Or um, I couldn't tell you that. I'm I'm not qualified really. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not either. What okay, so that's the that's the what is it? That's the only democracy in the, the middle that's the, the well, lone democracy in the Middle East. If you go back and look at listen to the um interviews, not that you're obliged to, of course, I've done the last few years, I've said it's a lunatic state. Yeah. It's a lunatic state. And you see now the lunacy is being played out, maybe not in the New York Times and maybe not in the New Yorker and maybe not in the New York Review of Books or Atlantic Magazine, but enough people will see it. You know, it's a cliche, but it's true. The democratizing effect of the web. 
they're not going to be able to hide this. Like, yeah. Although more than than one would think, I think, with searches. Well, I don't want to be too Pollyannish. Yeah. I I think that uh, Israel's, in my opinion, it's in for a rough ride now. Too much is known. Too many people alienated. Too many people disgusted. Um, there is a sea change occurring. Yeah, well, yeah, that's really disgusting, by the way. I don't, I mean, I'm always like, how is there not more violence? I, I don't understand how there's not more violence. I totally agree with you. But I'm afraid that this is going to, unless they figure something out. I'm afraid, yeah. I think, I won't, I'm not, I'm not going to underestimate the ability of the, of politicians and the media to just frame this and spin this when there is any response like no matter how disproportionately small the response is to the very disproportionately, you know, what's the what's the thing? They have a term for it, don't they, in Israel? Like officially? Disproportionate force. Yeah, disproportionate force. But I thought there was another frame for it. But so, so no matter, I think no matter how disproportionate the force is on the part of Israel, um, I mean, I think that I can't see, maybe, maybe I'm, I'll be, I, I'd be, happy to be wrong, but I, I still think there's a real possibility that the media and, you know, Democrats, of course, Republicans, but continue to kind of play the, the game of pointing to one incident of Palestinian violence to justify the status quo. Well, there are always those ups and downs and victories and defeats in the media, and it looks like it's always balancing each, balancing out, balancing out, and you haven't registered any significant progress in trying to persuade a public public opinion. But I don't really agree with that description. I think progress has been made. It's been slow, and it's been long in coming, but if we were to gauge progress by, say, how much distance the human rights organizations have traversed, I remember the picture in the 1970s and the 80s. I go back that far. I was a Maoist in the 1970s. I worked for... Uh, a radical newspaper called The Guardian. It's a Maoist weekly. And I remember what public opinion was like back then. And as I tried to point out a few moments ago, the very denunciation that made Daniel Patrick Moynihan's career denouncing the resolution in the UN that said Zionism is racism and now mainstream human rights organizations are saying it. So there has been a lot of progress. You always have to enter the caveat, not as much as we would wish, but still. Right. That's true. Not as much as we would have wished, but still, uh, there's been a lot of progress. There's been a lot of people who died, a lot of people who suffered, and nobody would want to trivialize the fact that because it took so long, so many people died in the process. But I think we should also acknowledge when there have been victories. 
And what's now being said, I say, constitutes a major victory. And from my point of view, what's equally important, it's going to give Israel a very hard time now. I'm sure many people there after that Human Rights Watch report are pressing the panic button. They won't be able to control public opinion. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's. Well, we should follow up on this. Love to have you back. Let's do a pre-tape on this. Was great. Everyone loved it. Um, people have some questions for you, but uh, about BDS, you can answer them now, or you can answer them another time. Um, another time. Yeah, because that's a whole other Megillah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll have Norman back. Don't worry, guys. And um, lots more to talk about. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Best of luck to you. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. That was great. Guys, everyone enjoy that. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our intern is Maria Trujillo. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.